Good morning. We're live in Zurich and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Carlotta Rebello here at Dufrustrasse 90. And I'm Chris Chermack. Coming up today, our guests, Florian Egli and Fabien Kinselmann, will share their views on the week's biggest stories. Florian, what have you spotted in the papers for us? So the front page of both main Swiss newspapers is climate change. So despite a lovely summer week, we're talking about warmer temperatures and the negative effect on the economy of that. Then Andrew Talk will bring us the view from London and we'll head to Belgrade for the latest from our Balkans correspondent, Guy Deloney. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be bringing you all the latest from the region, from the president's problematic posturing to dirty dogs in Dubrovnik. Look forward to that. It is the 22nd of May 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a good morning to you from Zurich. You are listening to Monocle on Sunday. And we are joined by Fabian Kinzelmann, a leading foreign affairs editor for Blick and Sonntagsblick newspapers, and by Florian Egli, senior associate of the Swiss foreign policy think tank Foros. Welcome to the program, both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Fabian, one of the things, aside from the heat, we're all kind of suffering from a little bit of pollen and hay fever over here, aren't we? It's just, it's just it's been kind of crazy, hasn't it? It is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coughing all morning. <laughs> At least we all know that we're all on the same boat together. <laughs> we're all on the same boat. I thought I'd just get that out there in case anyone hears through the radio a certain amount of sort of pollen coming through the airwaves. It's good to, good to know. But Florian, I feel you also have something... I think to get off your chest before we start off the show on your way here. I mean, this is really the big news. Yes, uh, I had to apologize, Chris. So I was I arrived here quite angry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I usually bike. I bike all the time, but my bicycle was parked at the train station, so I had to take a tram. I'm not used to that anymore. Took the tram for three stops, and of course, as it happens in Zurich on a quiet Sunday morning, you know, people go through the tram checking tickets. I did not have one because, again, Sunday morning, lazy, you know, start into the day. Um, so yes, I paid a hefty a hefty price to come here so I mean I, I hope it's appreciated we're going to make it worth your while as best we can we'll make sure to give you enough coffees until the, the, the fine has been paid up uh, I'll be I'll be high on caffeine <laughs> Fabian any lessons from that have you have you been have you suffered for the wrath of the Zurich uh, tram watchers I took an Uber oh <laughs> much so late geek economy wins there we go we just walked Chris so we really can't compare there's no no way to stop stop us from getting to the office. <laughs> we, we really just walked. It was it was a lot easier, but I'm going to keep that in mind next time I take the tram here. No, I think it's important to say the reason why we're here, Chris. We're obviously here for the beginning of the World Economic Forum, which kicks off later today. Indeed, after this very program, we'll be heading up to the mountains to uh, start the media uh, um, reception for that. Uh, but while we've been here these past few weeks, a uh, few days here in Zurich, there's been a lot of protests, and one of them um, that was not planned at all ended up stopping uh, the city for a couple of hours on uh, Friday night. Yeah, it was it was interesting. We were we were taken uh, um, actually with Tyler Brule on sort of a tour of Zurich, an unintended tour of the the heights of Zurich in order to get round the city center, which which was quite packed. I mean, Fabian, perhaps you you have a bit more on this. It was it was interesting. It was an unsanctioned protest. It wasn't that many people, but it still caused quite a ruckus. Yeah, it wasn't that many. It was just like a, a I don't know, a couple of dozens of people. Um but it ended up being quite heavily, right? Like a woman got hurt. Um Yeah. The police had to use water. Um 
Is is this something that sort of happens quite commonly here? Do you feel is that sort of the the, the water cannons, the the, the tear gas comes out <laughs> no, quite that's, quickly? That's, that's not very common. Um, <laughs> but I think like the the, uh, the leftist protest against the WEF, like the hate against WEF, has some kind of tradition. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> that is. Florian, what do you, what do you feel about that? How does that uh, come in here? It doesn't necessarily feel like this is the year of major protests, I suppose, at Davos, but there was, you know, still something. I I mean, the Davos protests have become some sort of, I would say, a bit unexciting since they closed off Davos, because back in the days, Davos was open. So the protests were in Davos, right? So you had like these, you know, CEOs and ministers or head of states, and then you had protests right next to them. So it was like, it was actually, you know, some real action. Um, And then I think that must have been 10 years ago or more, I think. Um, the, so the Swiss security forces, um, military police decided that this is too risky. So now they basically close off the entire valley, right? So you can only get to Landquart, which is like a, a 30, 40 minute train ride from Davos. Um, so basically the protests only get get until there um, or in Zurich, right? But but so it all it all becomes a bit less, um, you know, appealing or, or um, perhaps uh, urgent if, if these protests are in a completely different spot and Davos is like, you know, shielded from all of that. So I feel it's it's a bit less exciting um, than back in the days. And also this year, I don't know if that's just my impression, but I feel the WEF really hasn't gotten the coverage it usually does. Like I feel it's a bit under the radar, um, both in the news and also in the general perception. So um, yeah, it's it's. I think we're we're setting off for a quiet one. Also, I, I feel I, I, I was going to ask you uh, about what you think about this happening in the summertime, or at least in the warmer climate, because that was so associated with you know the snow, the beginning of the year in January, and I feel like. You know, on top of everything else, it does feel like quite a different edition of uh, the gathering. Exactly. And I think that's also why it has been like being flown under the radar. Um, first of all, because the big names are not coming. And second of all, because it's like already summer and like there are different, there are other topics normally when it happens in January, like there's nothing else happening. So people talk about that. I was pretty excited to like pack like light luggage, but um, I checked the weather app and it, it will be raining heavily the whole week. <laughs> so... Of course. <laughs> of course. It's Davos. That's that that's just how it's going to be, yeah. even if it's in May. But yes, I agree with both of you. It's been it's been interesting to be here for this because a lot of people you speak to, it feels like it's just sort of sort of caught up with them all of a sudden and that it's not quite as expected. Part of the reason perhaps I wonder is also it's just a tricky balance, isn't it? Because they still sort of did an event in January, even though it was digital, where you had speakers, it was by video, but it wasn't, you know, so it wasn't the full event, but you still had Xi Jinping speaking, you had Narendra Modi speaking, so some of the bigger names felt like they'd done that. And then and then, and now they're sort of not coming for this one. But at the same time, Florian, maybe they're, one of the things that I guess are being discussed, certainly maybe not protests, but... Of course, Ukraine is is a key part of this, and that's maybe where the protests also are going to be, I suppose. Russia will not be attending. There will be nobody there at all, businessmen or politicians, which was interesting, I found, particularly because uh, even last year, Vladimir Putin was still giving a special address to the World Economic Forum. Yeah, so I think the opinion towards Russia has dramatically shifted. Um, so that was to be expected that, you know, they're excluded um, from the WEF. So, I mean, the Russians are even excluded from playing at Wimbledon. So, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of to, to be expected. Um, yeah, but I think it's it's 
it's also interesting. So you know, we're living in a in a time. You know, we're coming out of this pandemic. Now we we have this 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 war um, in Ukraine. So we're coming. We're in a time where I think diplomacy or exchange or fora are in, more important than ever. And yet we see that I think the really established one, like the World Economic Forum, are are, are sort of struggling. I would say. And and one reason is probably. I mean, Klaus Schwab, the the founder and still you know chair of the whole forum. Um, he's he's eighty four years old now. So I think, um, you know, this was a hugely um, influential and and successful endeavor, but but somehow like the next thing has to come and they haven't really made it to that stage. And I think part of that is a personal transition, but part of that is also kind of a cultural transition. So the WEF, I think, you know, rightfully faces criticism of like addressing these big, big questions <laughs> once a year, but then not really, you know, having much to show afterwards. And there are different fora coming up, you know, um, like like the Antalya Forum in, in Turkey, which, for example, in, in a conflict like we're having in Ukraine is probably you know, even more appropriate uh, to, to kind of negotiate these things. So I think the WEF really is kind of in a bit of a in a bit of identity search. So I think they have to reinvent themselves if they want to stay relevant in the 10, 20 years to come. Well, let's cross over to London now, because I want to bring in Monocle's editor in chief, Andrew Tuck, who joins us down the line. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Carlotta. It sounds like you've, you've covered everything already. Hats, sun, sunshine, weather, you, you've already hit all the big topics. Are you feeling we'll jealous? To, well, a little bit, a little bit. Although I must say it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful sunny day here in London as well. Now, Andrew, we did miss you yesterday at the body market, of course. Uh, but I want to hear a bit more about this topic that we were just talking about, which is looking ahead to the World Economic Forum. Is it having any coverage across uh, London in the international press? Because, of course, we're here in the Swiss bubble. But as we were just saying, this is quite an, uh, an odd edition of the, of the summit. I think you'd have to dig very deeply today to find any coverage whatsoever. It's not, it's not on the front pages of the FT, the, the, the Telegraph, the Times. It, it, it's maybe buried somewhere inside, but none of those papers are, are leading with it as a, as a key story at the moment. I think there are all sorts of negotiations going on today. People are, are more intrigued by what's happening uh, in Canberra with the change of government seeming likely or almost definite now. Uh, people are looking at what's going to happen with the negotiations between the EU and the UK over Northern Ireland. There's so many co debates and conferences going on around the world that, uh, of course, Davos is, is, is crucial. And once it, it gets underway, there'll be coverage. But the run up to it is, is less exciting to uh, the, the press here in the UK, for sure. Andrew, Chris here to jump on one of those, uh, particularly the news out of Australia. What what are the British press making of that? Some of the headlines we had this morning was particularly this sort of declaration from the, the new or probably new prime minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, about sort of climate change and making, making Australia a renewable powerhouse. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The, the story has been picked up by all the newspapers, of course, you know, the the papers on the left saying that as, a, as this a moment of change and you know, finally you'll have a government that understands the need to move on climate change. But actually the papers on the right are, are intrigued as well because they're warning that don't, don't take your voters for granted, Mr Johnson. So that actually Scott Morrison maybe presumed he would kind of squeak in because of his, his robust dealing, as he saw it, with, with, uh, with COVID. But actually, when it comes to voting, people forget all those things after weeks of, of, of regulations and rules being lifted. So they're saying to Johnson, you know, watch out. Unless you've got a really clear story, 
then you're in trouble. And you know, at the moment, even though it's 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 not exactly the most exciting story, the issues of Partygate, the 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 questions about whether the House of Commons is nothing more than a big frat house, these are these are denting the Tories in many people's minds. And it may be that people just vote for change in the end. So I think there is some alarm on both, you know, in all the coverage on the right that actually Johnson could go the way of Scott Morrison. Well, speaking of alarm, I did just want to ask you, it's been interesting to watch headlines here as well about monkeypox and what that means. I'm just curious if that has, we had sort of a first Swiss case here, which is which is causing uh, a few nerves, I suppose, although not really because the government has sort of told everybody to essentially relax at this point. Is that the same thing you're getting in the UK or is it not even really breaching the headlines yet? Oh no, we lo- we love a good scare story. So uh, you know, monkeypox is everywhere. Monkey <laughs> monkeypox is the order of the day, and uh, it seems first of all that it's 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 through very very close contact that you get it. So uh, there is a, a case of a child getting it this morning. So that could be through being held by a parent, but most people seem to be getting it through sexual contact. It, it's it's that close. So it's not like COVID where you could catch it by being just in the room with somebody. It seems so. But there is concern, and there is there are some stories this morning saying that actually, what's potentially possible is you know that the the gap left by smallpox, where that's been you know, almost eradicated, it could be taken by another pox such as monkeypox. So there is some concern about it, and and the outbreak here in in the UK continues to grow, but it's it's not you know it's it's, it's not stopping people's summers, and I don't think it's stopping people going out and having fun. But yeah, there is there is some concern here about how big an outbreak that we might finally get. Now, Andrew, I wanted to ask you about our brand new issue of Monocle magazine, which hit newsstands just last Thursday. And I'm sure everyone that's here at Dufourstrasse 90 has seen the the brand new issue, June issue on uh, how to rebuild. But for our listeners who might not have time yet to go to the the newsstands, perhaps because they were getting fined on a tram on the way (laughs) into our shop, um, give us a sneak peek. Well, you have one of the authors, one of the best pieces in, in the magazine with you, Chris. We we he, we teamed up with our correspondent uh, in in Kiev in in Ukraine to do a story about how even now, even at this point in the, the the war, that people are having to think about what should the country look like and how can it rebuild when peace happens. So you literally have everybody from architects and and civic planners through to concrete companies and brick builders and brick makers rather thinking about what will be needed to turn around the situation and rebuild towns and cities and is there an opportunity even here you know if you if you rebuild soviet era era um, apartment blocks can you build back better and it's it was an extra, it's a great it's just a really fascinating story to see how even in government while they're 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 trying to get you know, new arms to fight the the russians in the east they're also planning about what the skyline of Kiev or or Mariupol could look like in the future. So it, it's a it's a it's a really amazing story. There's also I may may say a rather long story about the island of Mallorca, which um, is uh, somewhere which I have. A, hmm, I wonder if you had for. anything to do with that. <laughs> but that's also because what's fascinating is you know it, it's easy to talk up these you know confident stories about craft revival and you, you meet half a dozen people doing interesting things. But this is trying to be a story behind the story. So how do people try and revive a craft economy? And it turns out to be all 
gritty, hard work. Yes, you can achieve. Yes, you can do things. But sometimes it feels a bit against the odds of what central government is doing or even regional government. So it's a, it's a really amazing, I hope, inspiring story. And again, enticing people to think maybe they could lead their lives in a sunnier spot. But again, it's about always with Monocle, we're trying to find the the business angle, the cultural angle to make sure that it doesn't just look like a, a series of nice pictures. Now, Andrew, I want to uh, let you go out and enjoy indeed the sunshine in London, one of, another, one of those rare occasions at the moment. But another story that we have in the new issue is about the opening of the long-awaited Elizabeth line. And uh, the opening of the line is in just two days on Tuesday. Will you be one of the first passengers, you know, of course, for, uh, in this, uh, for sake of urbanist reporting, that is? Well, just so people understand this, this, this has taken years and years and years. And there is already debate that it may be the last metro line that is built across the city. And it's going to allow people to tra you know, tra traverse the city in incredible speed. They've built all of these new stations along the route, often marrying up with existing stations. But it's a huge engineering task that's gone wrong on many occasions. And actually... I'm excited about it. I think it's I think it's going to be transformational about how people see the city because suddenly you can get from one side to the other in a matter of, of minutes. And also because it will open up new parts of the city to commuters, to people who want to set up businesses but who don't want to be in the centre. So I, I, I certainly want to be on it. And there's lots of posters up all around London saying the, the date that it's opening and encouraging people to use it. I think there's going to be a real buzz about it. It's one of these things that we've, we've, we've so kind of poo-pooed and been grumpy about the whole kind of process. But it's like when we hosted the Olympics. When it comes, I think people are going to love it. Yeah, it'll be absolutely interesting to watch as it, as it finally arrives, the most much anticipated Elizabeth line. Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for joining us. We're going we're gonna to let you go uh, for today from there. But Fabian, I wanted to bring you in on a couple of things uh, from what Andrew was saying, but one I suppose I, I have to ask you about monkeypox as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, I mean... In the beginning, I thought like, okay, this is uh, like just some panic being created. But then I remembered how I did interviews with epidemiologists in um, in 2020, in January and February. We're still like in the end of January saying like, ah, COVID is not coming to Europe. And then in February, when it already hit like Italy and Germany was like, ah, no, Switzerland will not be affected. <laughs> so... Well, so there, yes, there's there's always that that worry at the beginning, but at the same time, this one doesn't feel quite the same. It has to be said, right? Yeah, it 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 is de definitely something different. But I think when we learn something from the past two years, then we should like not um, feel like too sure about certain things, and that we have to like observe and like reflect. Uh, observe, reflect, watch, uh, Florian. What what do you feel on that? Is that the mood we're in, or are we also do, do we want to sort of, I suppose, really show that we are observing, reflecting, watching, taking action? Is that is that part of this as well? Yeah, perhaps what Fabian said is like, um, it also translates into a feeling um, of journalists that you have to cover this story now to make sure that, you know, just in case something blows up in the near future that you were there, right? Um, we reported but, <laughs> on it early on. Exactly. We knew. We knew. Did, your, did your duties. Um, so, but I feel in the general, at least like in people I speak to, I mean, this is this is really at the fringe, so nobody really takes big note of it. Um, and I think what's interesting is, you know, this is kind of a broader a broader reality we have to we have to um, kind of grapple with is that you know we're we're in a very mobile um, 
um, society and 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 the climate is changing. So we will have more, you know, tropical typically diseases that move kind of northwards towards the northern hemisphere. And we're going to have to deal with it, like also with malaria, with dengue fever, with all of these things. And I think um, that's something to watch. Like public health capabilities have to be ramped up. I think in the in the medium term in you know, um, Western Europe and, 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 you know, the global north, so to say, um, because, you know, the reality will shift. So that might be like a first kind of, you know, sign for that. Well, Fabian, it seems interesting to, to watch uh, from some of the things Andrew was talking about, but also talking about Davos uh, before mm -hmm. that. Climate change is one of these topics that I, I suppose in a way has been sort of fighting for attention with so much else going on in the world at the moment, Russia and Ukraine and the pandemic and economic collapse and everything else. And yet it is still today, particularly we heard from, you know, Anthony Albanese in Australia, making it a key priority here in Switzerland. It's being talked about as well ahead of Davos. It is it is still a topic. Isn't yeah. It? And I think especially when we're looking at the guest list, like China, the US and Germany are all sending their climate ministers. So I think that's um, that really shows the countries are still taking it seriously and like know they, that they have to move forward. And also um, because we talked about the protest, there is like one protest allowed in Davos and it's the climate protest. So um, the cl young climate movement will protest again on Thursday in Davos. Yeah, that, that, that is something, I guess, in itself. It shows, it shows where still the focus is, certainly, of those outside of Davos. Florian, what, what do you make of that? What is, the, what is the news out of Switzerland when it comes to climate change? So, as I said in the, in the primer, it makes the first page of both the Sonntagszeitung and the Enzitzetum Sonntag. Um, kind, kind of slightly different angles. So the Sonntagszeitung um, speaks about productivity, that you know, once uh, temperatures reach, uh, reach 29 degrees, people working out outside start, um, you know, uh, start their evenings one hour earlier. Um, and about temperature records, of course. But I think the interesting thing is that, you know, it cites some studies that productivity starts going down, um, you know, north of 23 degrees Celsius. So that's not very warm. Um, and yet the Swiss State Secretariat for the Economy says up to 31 degrees, you can comfortably work inside in your office jobs. I, I would disagree with that. But so there is certainly talk about, you know, what this costs our economy. And estimates are that it's at least twice the price of the seasonal flu. So, um, that is quite a lot, although compared to the total, it's 0.1%, so it's still very marginal if you compare it to the GDP. Um, but, you know, there, these are costs that are coming towards us. Um, and the Anstedem Sonntag um, talks about the bureaucracy of building wind farms in Switzerland, which is kind of a parody in itself. So um, one of the um, you know most prominent examples is a wind farm that was planned in the Jura, so in the, in the east of Switzerland. Um, it was submitted, like the whole application was submitted 23 years ago. It's yet to be built. <laughs> <laughs> that that does give a slightly different impression, Fabian. Doesn't this it? doesn't Swiss sound bureaucracy. this doesn't sound like the Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're yeah, we're very we're very proud of giving people individual rights, you know. So um, there is a lot of you know claims about landscape, about you know noise disturbances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that you know drag on in court. So it's virtually impossible at the moment to build wind farms in Switzerland. And there are some claims, you know, that that we should you know. Um, for these particular projects, limit the rights to um, to recourse and the right uh, for individuals to basically have a say in how they're planned. So, it uh, kind of a struggle for dem democracy as well. And and what about the worker productivity angle, Fabian? What is what is your uh, threshold? I suppose at which point you stop working. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, um, the, the problem is whenever there is a crisis happening, we as journalists have to be on it. So uh, I will probably be among the last ones. <laughs> among the last ones to stop. Do you are you going to fight for air conditioning in uh, in your office? Do you have air conditioning? Oh, we have wonderful <laughs> air conditioning, and the good thing is it's not um, it's not being run by like uh, some Russian gas or oil or something like that. It's actually from the lake. It's um, it's like a lake cool how how is it that's that's so cool i used to have this in my old office so they basically took the 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 water from lake of zurich or limat which is the river mm-hmm. and basically they just they just basically let water run through your ceiling and that's like the cooling effect so it's it's really nice because you don't get the dry air from the aircon but now i don't have aircon and here we don't have aircon either so <laughs> i saw <laughs> you flow and you were okay. you were fuming as yeah. fabian started talking about that fuming that you don't have the same thing in your office yes i know it's just it's such a pity we had to move offices <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is Another You're point. always welcome. Our newsroom is so empty since the pandemic. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. <laughs> that is that is one bit of positive news, I guess, to, to end on again from Switzerland. We might not have the bureaucracy here necessarily on wind farms, but we do have the special air conditioning from, from the lake, from the river. That is that is a nice thing. But um, for now, yes, let's just go straight to the headlines with Carlotta Rubello. Thanks, Chris. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky asked for Russia to return to the negotiating table to resolve the war through diplomacy. The remarks were made last night as he spoke to the nation in a televised address. Meanwhile, heavy fighting continues as Russian forces step up efforts to seize the whole of the Luhansk region. Tens of thousands of people have gathered at a rally in Istanbul in support of the leading opposition figure, Kanan Kaftacidioglu. She has received a criminal conviction for insulting President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the Turkish state. She has repeatedly said that the charges are politically motivated. Australia's new leader has vowed to take the country in a new direction with a big shift in climate policy. Anthony Albanese, who won yesterday's election with the opposition's centre-left Labour Party, said Australia could become a renewable energy superpower. He is to be sworn in as Prime Minister tomorrow. And yesterday was the grand final of the European Tram Driver Championship. The event featured 25 teams from 19 different nations and included a team from Melbourne for the very first time. The five and a half hour event shows off different driving skills, including racing at about 20 miles per hour and then braking, quote, really, really fast when a stop sign is held up and a tram bowling challenge. The winners were Jessica Schluter and Andreas Brooks from Hanover. The those are the headlines. Back to you, Chris. <laughs> we were we were definitely enjoying that one, Fabien. Uh, Germany, Germany won. Yeah, Hanover. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And I've seen the pictures yesterday, and I, I first thought it's a fake when I saw these trams like doing this bowling contest. It's hilarious. <laughs> That's just the kind of news we need right now. It's serious competition from uh, the news that I gathered. It's uh, quite a serious event. It, it, it is quite a serious event. It's, it's sort of taken seriously, I guess. Anything, anything. I mean, within the tram community and, and the general urbanism community that is yours, Carlotta, as well. Of course. I mean, combining urbanism and sports, uh, that's me. And I, I found it just fitting, considering uh, the story with Florian getting in here this morning, that um, maybe next time we need to get to one of the champions to drive you through Zurich and yes, that it will way be so, fast. so fast no no time to check <laughs> there's <tickets>. no time <laughs> exactly maybe we need to you know hook you up with the winners from Hanover so fast 20 kilometers per hour max miles Amazing. miles per uh, hour miles excuse me <laughs> well that changes everything then thank you very much Carlotta it is coming up on 17 uh, tw- 32 in Tokyo 10 22, uh, 32 here in Zurich and 11.32 in Helsinki. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday.
Next, we have uh, Belgrade. I'm glad to say we are joined by Monocle's Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaney. Good morning, Guy. Are you there? Good morning, indeed I am, and good morning all. <laughs> it's good to it's good to hear you. We're going to go through a run of stories uh, from your neck of the woods. Let's let's start with Slovenia and uh, Lynx making a comeback. Now we really are in the neck of the woods here because this was in the woods earlier this week. I, I went to see a Lynx release. I've never seen a Lynx release before. I'm not quite sure if I've actually ever actually seen a Lynx up close before, but this was a big event in Slovenia because they're trying to revive the Lynx population in this country, uh, which went into a steep decline um, around 20 years ago, uh, having been revived in the 1970s and was lacking in genetic diversity. So they've been introducing Lynx from other parts uh, of Europe. So the latest one to be released was a Lynx called Blisk, which was brought in from Romania. It had been kept getting uh, acclimatised, I suppose, in the woods near Sneznik in southern Slovenia, near the border with Croatia. And uh, on uh, the morning of its release, we all stood there in silence, waiting for it to pop out as they dropped the gate. And I thought it was going to be one of those things where the lynx just doesn't appear at all. But no, out he popped, had a good look, clearly knew we were there, said, don't fancy the look of you not much, and uh, skedaddled off into the woods. <laughs> that's, that's, that's essentially what they do, I suppose. But it was good that you at least got a little bit of experience. Well, indeed. And the thing is, the, the people who run the project, which is called Life Links, which is a, a Europe-wide project, which has got support from the European Commission, say it's very important, actually, to have the links in the woods because they're an apex predator. And without the presence of apex predators, it has a knock-on effect on all the other species. And on one of these, well, they said to me, look, if, if the deer don't have to run away from the lynx, the deer won't be as fit. So it's, it's for their own good. The, the threat of being eaten by a lynx is, is for, the, for, the, for the good of the deer population as much as it is anything else. But one heartening thing that I learned on, on uh, Tuesday when we went along to this lynx release, which I'd never really quite twigged before, uh, twig being the operative word here, is how much afforestation there's been in Slovenia in the past few decades. So during the 1970s, when they had these initial efforts to revive the lynx population, about 30% of Slovenia was forest. Now it's more than 60%. So this country really has gone under a, a significant greening process in the past few decades. Uh, Guy, let's move on to the other story you have for us today. And this is about uh, Croatia's president and, uh, you know, the issues that he's posing for Finnish and uh, Swedish NATO bids. So people have probably heard about Recep Tayyip Erdogan and what he's been saying about NATO membership for Finland and Sweden. They may have missed what Zoran Milanovic, the president of Croatia, has been saying. And he's been doing this for, for the past couple of weeks and he's keeping banging the drum on this, that he doesn't think that Finland and Sweden should join NATO until Bosnia and Herzegovina Re, um, reforms its electoral law. Now, this is, seems like an incredible reach, but there's been this ongoing battle in Bosnia over the electoral law and how the different ethnic groups in Bosnia are represented. And P President Zoran Milanovic of Croatia wants better representation for ethnic Croats in Bosnia. And he's somehow tying this in to this NATO issue. He reckons he's got leverage over the international community if he can hold up this, uh, this accession process for Finland and Sweden. And he says, look, we're not asking them to change their names to IKEA. Uh, we just want to uh, represent the rights of ethnic Croats in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina.
So is he basically trying to use this domestically as Croatia's parliament has, you know, to vote in favour for the accession to try to gain some points back home, uh, making a domestic issue international? Well, absolutely. Mr. Milanovic is not of the same party as the government of Croatia. So the government of Croatia is uh, led by the HDZ, which is a nationalist conservative party. And Mr. Milanovic uh, from the Social Democrats originally, although much of his behaviour since he became president has not been particularly social democratic at all. Uh, But the government, the foreign minister, has accused the president of blackmail. And the president in turn has proposed the foreign minister for the Nobel Prize for treason. So, you know, it's a lot of fun following this from from the outside in a way um but you know it the question does remain does mr milanovic have the power to instruct the nato representative from croatia to in in effect veto the accession of finland and sweden and that's a vexed issue at the moment and it is of course causing great debate in croatia well, guys, speaking of uh, blackmail and threats, we did want to talk about one other story. In Serbia, it's been, uh, well, quite crazy, really, to watch that schools, shopping centers, airports are all receiving bomb threats on quite a daily basis. What has this been about? It's been absolutely extraordinary. So just last Monday, for example, 170 schools in Belgrade had to be evacuated because of bomb threats. And this is not an isolated occurrence. We've seen this happening with schools, with shopping centres, with airports. I mean, so airports and shopping centres also targeted in the past week with these bomb scares. Uh, And, of course, it's causing massive disruption to transport, to public life, uh, to education. And the government reckons that this is all to do with Serbia's stance towards Russia and, in particular, towards sanctions. So uh, Prime Minister Anna Banovic saying it's a form of pressure for not imposing sanctions on the Russian Federation coming from abroad. It's not naive at all. It's not accidental. It's something that's been well prepared and carefully planned. And uh, we've also heard the foreign minister describing it as a form of hybrid warfare. Now, Guy, before we let you go, I want to turn to this last story that you have for us. That for a few seconds, I wasn't really sure if it was real or not. But it seems like uh, police in uh, Dubrovnik are ready to test the DNA of uh, whatever dogs leave behind <laughs> in public parks. Delicately put, Carlotta, and indeed that's co- quite correct. They are so fed up. In fact, the mayor in particular is so irritated by the state of the pavements in Dubrovnik uh, that they're thinking of uh, setting up a DNA database of dogs and they would then test whatever the owners don't pick up and they would trace the dogs and their owners and find them. Now, of course, there's already the uh, the ability within the legal code to find owners who don't pick up after their dogs um, and most dogs are microchipped. So it, in, a, in a way, it's just an extension of the, 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 the process they've got already. Uh, but they would have to do this DNA database, which is new. And that would cost quite a bit about, I think, uh, something about 25 euros per dog, if I've uh, got the conversion rate correctly from Croatian Kuna. Um, but they're, they're getting so irritated about it. And you can imagine that Dubrovna gets so many tourists that uh, they don't really want them, you know, having to clean the soles of their shoes when they get back from walking around the ramparts. So, yeah, it could happen. It could be a thing. Well, um, you're leaving me with more questions than answers, really, if I'm, if I'm <laughs> honest. I, I remember seeing similar stories coming out of Israel and even, I believe, in Italy, Naples, a few years ago. But then the complication of building this database seemed to be so big that I'm not really sure if the project ever went ahead. But a big question is, what happens if it's a stray dog How that is not microchipped? How Do they go after the dog? Like, what happens then? 
That's a very good question. And we've got stray dog issues, actually, in many cities across this region. It's absolutely, I mean, this is slightly digressing here. But if, if I were in Sarajevo, for example, I have been petrified by packs of stray dogs in, in Sarajevo. And there are similar issues in places like Pristina, Skopje, Belgrade. Um, that's an issue across the region. And you've got charities like the Dogs Trust, which are also quite heavily involved in this region, because it is a this is a region-wide thing. Issues with stray dogs in, in, in the cities causing more problems, frankly, uh, than just leaving unwelcome presence on the pavement. Guy Delaney, thank you for joining us here on Monocle on Sunday. And please do stay safe from the pack of stray dogs in Dubrovnik. We'll be back quite shortly. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by award-winning Sydney-based industrial designer David Kayon. He knows that getting a good night's sleep is key to improving his creative process. We have a saying in our household which is, sleep begets sleep. It's a saying that became prominent as we started on our journey of raising children. Essentially what it means is that good sleep is a habit it's a habit that requires effort and perhaps even some ritual. Being well rested is so important to creative thinking and getting the most out of your day that I think it's a habit well worth getting into. Head to Heston's.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps David Kayon and the world's creative and business leaders too. Heston's, be awake for the first time in your life. And welcome back. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Carlotta Rabello and Chris Chermak. And still with us as well are Fabian Kinselmann and Florian Egli. Uh, Fabian, there were so many stories from Guy to choose from. I think I have to start at the end. Are we, are we hoping that DNA uh, for dog droppings will come to Germany, Switzerland as well? Should, is this something already in the works, do you think? I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> people are people are responsible here. They pick up. There's no there's no necessary requirements. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think like I remember when I was a child, like you would still see like dog poo on the streets, but like now, have you seen recently? Not here? not since I've been here in in Germany. Living in Berlin, I have oh, to say okay, there was Berlin. a fair amount. Berlin of that. is not Germany. Berlin doesn't count <laughs> as Germany. I have heard that many times since I was there as well. I'll I'll, I'll give I'll give you that, <laughs> Florian. <laughs> I mean, look, at. I mean, we were joking about what the job ads would look like for these people, you know, <laughs> picking up dog poo and then categorizing it and analyzing it. So I think it will be hard to find enough people to do this. Um, but, you know, more, I mean, more generally, I think, you know, there are some, these are cultural issues. Like there are some issues you can't fix with technology. Like, I mean, this is something you need to fix culturally that, you know, people and dog owners feel responsible um, for their dogs. And it's not, technology is not a fix to everything. So I think we're a bit in this strange world where, you know, Governments just think, oh, here is technology. I mean, the next one is going to come up and, you know, start a drone program that basically, you know, automatically identifies all the dog poo. And you know, it's just not a fix to everything, I think. So I think it's quite it's quite an illusion to think that that will solve it. That that divide between personal responsibility, I suppose, and uh, and technological solutions. What do you think, Carlotta? Well, I think it goes to a wider issue, not only of like uh, personal responsibility and, you know, our role in society, but ultimately, you know, we as humans took over nature 
nature, you know, the dogs. And I'm thinking in this instance of animals who are not pets and just live out there in our cities and in the wild. You know, they have to go somewhere, you know, and just because we decided to urbanize what would have been natural habitat, I'm not sure if that's the correct approach. I mean, imagine that scenario of having uh, this, you know, dog poo police basically uh, happening. But I do I do completely agree that there needs to be social responsibility. And um, when we agree to live in society, there are certain rules that you have to obey for, you know, everyone's for the cohesion around us. Uh, but I'm not sure if this will be the right way forward. Uh, a fine is the right way forward. But a DNA database, it just seems a bit a bit too sci-fi for me. <laughs> well, speaking of social responsibility, transition to something back a little more serious. I was struck as well by some of the stories from Guy there, particularly about uh, Russia and what is happening, whether it is the, the bomb threats that Serbia is facing for not being part of sanctions or, for that matter, the sort of posturing by by world leaders or by European leaders when it comes to NATO and Finland. Fabian, what, what did you make of that, particularly from Croatia as well? It does feel like a lot of world leaders, uh, or NATO leaders, I should say, are using this as an opportunity rather than, uh, well, essentially being responsible and staying united. There's a, there's a question around sort of do you think that it makes sense? Uh, is it just common, I suppose, that many world leaders or NATO leaders, I suppose, will use this as an opportunity to score domestic political points rather than staying on the side of Finland and Sweden when it comes to this? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but I also think we're... we're, we're um, it's it would be too simple to say like they are just like using this situation um, for the domestic approach. Um, I think this is like a very it is a complex topic and um, of course there are different like influences um, on every world leader on every NATO leader um, to decide and um, so I, I don't think we should like say oh they are just like making politics at home with like. It, it is always it always certainly more complicated than that, Florian. What what did you make of that? Do you do you feel it's it's sort of inevitable and and perhaps right to some degree that that leaders are going to look for something out of this? I mean, it's inevitable. I I mean, it's it's a bit ridiculous at the same time. I mean, if you hear the claims and the connections that they're making, um, but I think you know the broader picture here is, and that's something that happens within NATO, within the European Union, so within all these like big coalitions of, of states that, you know, these um, basically all originated from Western states, right, and then expanded eastwards. And for a long time, I think that the, that the, con the concept of Western states was I mean, we can expand eastwards, and that's to the benefit of all because, you know, it's going to be market integration, it's going to be like the European identity, and it's a political and democratic project and all of that. But effectively, they set the rules. And that was always, that was always the notion behind these projects. Like Western Europe and the US were setting the rules in NATO, Western Europe was setting the rules in the EU. And now we're coming into a stage where um, these Western Western governments realize, oh, well, we actually gave you know those other members a real say, and and that's a completely new dynamic that I think um, a lot of a lot of Western um, you know a lot of capitals, um, Berlin, uh, Paris, uh, Washington have to some extent underestimated that there is actually real negotiation power now, and perhaps less so in the case of Croatia, but certainly in the case of Turkey, um, on which the EU heavily depends with regards to to uh, to refugees as well. So. You know, there is a real new reality that Western governments have to kind of make sense of and and figure out how to navigate, I think. Fab Fabian, do you do you feel in general uh, 
is is there a problem at this point in staying united within Europe when it comes to Ukraine? What to do about it when it comes to things like memberships to, for for Finland and Sweden? Are we seeing a little bit of a the cracks, I suppose, in the unity that we had uh, a month ago? Um, no, I don't think so. I think there is like the the unity from the beginning, of course, that this would change. That we we could like not. In the beginning, the reality was very very simple. So the countries had to stay united, um, but now that it's like, um, and I think it's very natural what's happening now. I would not say it's cracks. It's it's just like um, the the questions are getting more specific. It might not be like black and white anymore. So um, of course we are seeing some discourse about things, and I think that's actually that's a good thing. It is it is a positive thing that's flowing. But I mean, imagine the sign that this sends. Like now, imagine if if I mean Sweden is a bit of a different. But if Finland's NATO ma- membership is declined or postponed because these positions are actually upheld, which I I still think is not realistic. Like I don't think that's going to happen, but it is a possibility. Imagine the sign that this sends. So basically, Russia invaded the country, um, you know, westwards in the south, and the, the other one westwards in the north is trying to join NATO, but it can't. And there is all this, like you know, of course, um, history of of you know. Um, of Russia in Finland and also it, when you go there you know um, you realize it like how Helsinki is built you know it's, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of like uh, Russian influence there right so it's in the, in that case I think a very a very um, a very special request for a NATO membership because it is one of the countries that is squarely like within Europe also culturally but historically very very close to Russia so um, in a sense you know it's it's perhaps like 30 40 years further down the road than Ukraine is at the moment um, but in a sense it's you know I see some parallels there and I just think that the sign this would send those to Vladimir Putin um, would be quite disastrous so I, I really hope that you know there will be you know, an alignment within within NATO member states. I think they will be, like in the end, they will be accepted as a NATO member. Um, but I also think like um, we cannot compare Finland to Ukraine in terms of like defense capability because like Finland already um, defeated Russia like 100 years ago or when it was. And, um, and also like they invested so much in their army within the past years, like they are quite capable. I think to defend themselves even without the alliance but you are absolutely mm-hmm. right it would be a disastrous symbol if they would not get a membership well let's look at some of the stories uh, from our little patch of the world right here uh, in zurich and uh, uh, florian you mentioned a story right before we came on air about switzerland wanting to have its own cyber department what is this all about Yes, so I think it's also you know in the broader context mm-hmm. of the of the war in Ukraine, um, but also of how Switzerland handled the pandemic, where cases had to be faxed to Bern, um, which you know created a huge outcry, and everybody's like, okay, but you know we were one of the richest countries, like, where is the technology? So then there came kind of a, a realization that technology or cyber cyber capabilities don't really have a home in the Swiss administration, and last week um, it was decided that you know there will be. An actual, um, an actual, you know, a, a team um, situated in a department that is um, that is only taking um, care of cyber cyber questions. And now, you know, we start seeing the the kind of um, um, 
I would say intrigues, but so like different departments, different federal councillors now try to get this um, within their department. And there is especially, um, you know, a conflict between the defence ministry and the Ministry of the Interior, which I think is interesting because it points to what is cyber or technology capabilities? Is it something that we need to defend ourselves? Is it really like attacks on our infrastructure? We need cyber like military capabilities? Or is it something, you know, that is going to take care of the faxing cases in COVID um, times? So that's more like a technology for society um, role and there it would fit into the into the Ministry um, of the Interior. So I think, you know, this is yet to be decided, but definitely um, the government has realized that we need more technology and cyber capabilities. It seems quite interesting timing. You said this was uh, approved or just last Thursday uh, this week and a week ago, if I'm not mistaken, it was when um, Switzerland made it quite public that they wanted to increase uh, a cyber security alliance with the US in exactly on issues of defense and of um, maybe boosting military ties. Do you think that this is a country that needs to boost uh, perhaps cyber education to get people a bit more aware of what indeed cyber is? Um, because it just seems, I don't know, there's so much beforehand, right, until we get to this point of implementing a department. Is it about creating that culture of being a bit more tech savvy, I guess? Look, I mean, Switzerland is home to to ETH in Zurich and Lausanne, which is one of the top 10 universities in the world and, and, and a technical school where, like, you know, cyber capabilities are kind of thrown out every year. Um, so I think there is really there is no lack of capabilities. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's also tied to the structure of the economy in Switzerland with a lot of small and medium sized enterprises that really struggle because they all of a sudden have to shield themselves, um, you know, from attacks in a digital space that require resources that, that you simply don't have if you have a company with 20, 50 um, employees, right? So I think there is something structural that needs to be addressed here where we have to perhaps as a government or like government aided at least offer these services also to the economy or then, you know, more and more credible service providers have to kind of come out of the economy to, to you know, offer that, that sort of protection. Um, so I think it's, it's rather, in my opinion, it's really a question about organizing. I think there is a lot of talent and a lot of tech savviness around in the Swiss economy, um, but it's not really organized properly. So I'm, I'm quite glad to hear that this is taken up now. Well, it's interesting, uh, Florian, the way you were talking about this divide and the question of where cyber security fits in. I remember being uh, sort of in Kiev in Ukraine just before the war. And at that point, so much of the discussion there was actually about cybersecurity as well. And it was part of almost, interestingly, the reason many Ukrainians did not believe that an invasion would happen was because they believed, well, Vladimir Putin is using all of these other efforts, if you will, to undermine Ukraine, to undermine Europe. And that was actually succeeding quite well. What did you, what did you, what do you make of that, Fabian? Um, yeah, I think. And also we saw like when the when the war in Ukraine started that um, the Russians also uh, launched some uh, some cyber attacks in other European countries. Um, and I mean, yeah, attacking critical infrastructure via cyber war. I'm not uh, via, via, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if we are um, prepared enough for that. It's it's something to get more prepared for. Do you Definitely, feel? I mean, more united on. Yeah, when you look at the governments, like who's dealing with like um, with questions of like uh, of of cyber of cyber attacks of like digital infrastructure. I mean, in Germany, I think like the the um, the minister for mobility is responsible for it. There's like no digital minister or something. 
Yes, it's something that maybe other countries need to think about what Switzerland is doing. Maybe we have what time for one final story. Uh, Florian, you had, you had one more for us about the makeup of the Swiss uh, government, essentially, or legislature, I should say. What's been happening there? So that, and that's actually a very, a very nice segue because it's tied to that. Um, so there is a proposal being discussed in parliament to um, enlarge the executive branch of the Swiss government from seven to nine federal councillors. So it's quite a particular setup. So those those seven um, federal councillors now have equal power, so they have to reach um, decisions by vote um, on, on, on topics to form the opinion of the Swiss, um, Swiss executives, or ex- essentially the Swiss government. Um, but also, each of those seven um, federal councillors has a department. So Switzerland has only seven departments, which is very, very few compared to a lot of, I mean, most countries would have 20 to 30 departments, right, um, or ministries. And so now there is talk of expanding from seven to nine, which would, on the one hand, create two new departments, and one will, I mean, the talk is that one will be in the t- technology space and one will be in the climate space, which is interesting because both would be transversal. And I think that's something different, right? So they will be transversal across all other um, all other ministries because every ministry has to think about the impacts of climate um, change and the impacts of technology on its operations. Um, and the other thing why it might work this time, so it was tried already, I think, three to four times. It failed each time. Um, why I think um, the chances are a big, a big bit better now is because it would allow better party representation. So currently we have um, a system that um, those those seven uh, federal councillors represent um, all parties but the Greens and the Green Liberals. And together those parties would have 25% of the vote roughly, I think. Um, so it's really like some, you know, some parties and also some, some pockets of society are underrepresented. So we have this kind of two sides of the debate. One is like we see these topics that need to be presented better. And the other is we see, you know, we want to have more parties in there without necessarily other parties losing seats because, of course, they're fighting against. So there might be kind of a sweet spot for the first time. So it's too early to say, but I think, you know, if if ever, then now um, this could happen. And would it be done in a very Swiss fashion? Would it be put up to a referendum to be decided? I mean, I, I think certainly we would <laughs> vote on this. I cannot imagine this going through without a popular vote. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to both of you for joining us here on Monocle on Sunday, for keeping both Chris and I company before we head up to Davos a bit later. And of course, we'll be hearing more from you across the next couple of weeks here on Monocle 24. Fabian Kinzelman and Florian Egli, thank you very much for joining us today. And also thanks to Guy Delaney and Andrew Tuck for their contributions. Our sound editors were Desiree Bandley here in Zurich and Nora Hall was running the desk in London. I'm Chris Chermack here in Zurich. And I'm Carlotta Rebello. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.